What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers. Coming to you a little bit late uh, for this day, but the rain doth come and we do chat. So <laughs> I am. And, and apparently it hasn't wiped you out yet. So, you know. No, not yet. My house is on stilts. So I should be okay. But I have just jinxed it, of course. Now. My name is George Terran, and I am one of the hosts of The Armchair Producers, the legendary podcast where the bare minimum is our standard <laughs> seal of approval. You're and getting out. I, nothing more. Nothing more. Yep. Five out of seven Russian bots do approve of this podcast. And As we are the number one Suburban Commando podcast. The number one in the market. That's right. Bar none. One. I mean, there are no others, but, you know. Still, we're number one in one. <laughs> we are equally the best and the worst live podcast for <laughs> Suburban Commando. Fans of Suburban Commando. As many fans have said to date, it's a nice place to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there. Nice mm -hmm. place to live, but you wouldn't want to visit there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and <laughs> now, that is, of course, the wonderful talent, the man that brings the quality to this show, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy. Uh, it was cool uh, evening. It's uh, in October. It's um, pretty chilly in Melbourne. Pretty wet. Um, uh, I've been literally told to stay away from the office tomorrow. It's going to be raining that much tomorrow. Oh, um, okay. So um, I am Don't come in. Pretty much it's like my my one of my bosses at work that I decided to drive in. Got halfway and decided to turn around and go back. Um, it was like a car park um, driving to get to the city today. So. Wow. Um, a bit of wild weather here in Australia. Um, probably going to be standard moving forward. So um, it seems to be, yeah. You know, uh, no, welcome no. to welcome to the world of tomorrow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Last week we were talking about the nullable planes and the dry, arid na nature of it, and now we are seriously considering all traveling to work in canoes. There was a story this week in the news about um, the, the drought in Southern California is so severe. <laughs> That the mm. lakes and stuff um, are drying out completely, mm, and they're yes, finding okay. stuff in them. Like they found a uh, a Higgins boat, which is the the boat the door that goes down the front from like Sergeant Saving Private Ryan. They found mm. one of those that was like General Patton's headquarters when he invaded Sicily. It was in a lake in California, and no one's got any idea how it got there. And apparently in Lake Mead in Nevada, they've found like three bodies or something. They're just assuming a mob hits, but because Lake Mead is so low, they've become wow. discovered. So it's huh. it's ha all happening in different parts of the world. Welcome to the weather podcast. Um, that's so maybe about we'll finally have an answer to the mystery of what ha happened to Amelia Earhart. Uh, yeah, she's uh, checked up with Elvis and Tupac, I think. Um Ah, yes, yes, yes. They they are currently being hosted by David Bowie, I believe. And, and I believe they are attached to direct the um, Hollywood remake of Akira. So, you know. Um, well, it's about time because they've gone through pretty much everyone. I'm everyone else. No, my letter of offer any day now. Exactly. It's your turn. Yeah. <laughs> now, we are going to be talking. Um, last week, we talked about James and the Giant Peach, which was a very maligned movie, in our opinion, for many problems. But one of the shining stars of it, one of the true gems, was the wonderful Miriam Margulies, playing one of the horrible aunts. And we followed her to an uncredited role in Paul Thomas Anderson's 1999 three-hour 
Epic. Epic. Melancholy epic, I think, is a good way of describing this. Magnolia. Yes. So, Trav, you picked this one. So, tell us, introduce us to the Magnolia. An epic mosaic of interrelated characters in search of love, forgiveness, and meaning in the San Fernando Valley. This is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, his follow-up to Boogie Nights. Um, Miriam Margulies, as you know, was uncredited, which is surprising because she had a, a line or two. Um, and I'm like, she wasn't just like someone opening a door somewhere in the background like an extra, but uh, apparently she asked to be uncredited because of the size of the yeah. role. Um, 24 hours in LA, it's raining cats and dogs. Two parallel mm-hmm. intercut stories dramatize men about to die. Both are estranged from growing children. Both want to make contact and neither child wants anything to do with dad. Bill Partridge's son is a charismatic misogynist. Jimmy mm-hmm. Gator's son is a cokehead and a waif. A mild and caring nurse intercedes for Earl, reaching the son. A prayerful and upright beat cop meets the daughter, is attracted to her, and leads her toward a new calm. Meanwhile, guilt consumes Earl's young wife, there while two whiz kids, one grown and a loser, and the other young and pressured, face their situations. The weather, too, is quirky. That's a lot, but it's certainly a more accurate uh, read of what the story is about than uh, an epic mosaic of interrelated characters. This movie was, of course, released in 1999, mm-hmm. and it reeks of the 90s. Um, I, Amy Mann soundtrack. My goodness. Amy Mann, heavy Amy Mann soundtrack. She was really the it girl for these sort of things in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's more 90s once we get under the covers here too. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember seeing this, I'm guessing, around about the turn of the century, and yeah. really, obviously, but, you know, when it, shortly after it came out, and really quite liking it and thinking it was a was was a masterpiece. And I think yeah. that was kind of the acknowledged, you know, in the zeitgeist at the time that this was a masterpiece. Really? It has an IMDB score of eight, a meta score of 77. Mm-hmm. Um, but and what I was interested in was like by picking it was like, does this hold up? Like I haven't seen this film in 20 plus years. Yeah. And I think we were talking last week. I um I saw the family guy take the piss out of um American Beauty, and there's a film from about the same era. But I think yeah. it doesn't hold up at all. And quite aside from the creepiness of Kevin Spacey, uh, what he became, <laughs> it just, it, it, I don't know, it just it seemed really hip and cool at the time. And now you're just like, mm, yeah. really pretentious and wanky. Sometimes, but if you see a film like Fight Club from you know, the late 90s, I, I think that film is just as relevant now as it was back then. It's still cool and fun and entertaining. Yeah. But um, I've learned, according to the uh, younger generation, uh, Chuck Palahniuk, don't know how I'm pronouncing his name right, the author of a book, Fight Club, mm-hmm. is now considered problematic. Um, wow. And you are considered problematic if you read his books. Um, so I was reading a Reddit thread which said if someone, you went out and date with someone and what's a book that they could, if they could tell you was their favourite that would make you turn around and go home? Um, and Chuck Palahniuk was, um, was one that was mentioned. Whereas the correct answer, of course, is anything by Ayn Rand fucking leave um but so sorry i'm off topic but like fight club i think it's a very relevant and entertaining film still today um this film i think falls squarely under the american beauty banner for me this was a really hard watch for me this week it really dragged and sagged along the storylines are confusing uh hard to sort of make sense of sometimes the musical interlude was bizarre. 
Um, and the ending was nonsensical. Um, it's kind of hard to put the pieces together to see exactly what it was he was trying to say with his film. Parts of a film make sense. Other parts of it just seemed to be ideas that was he couldn't get rid of because he liked them too much. What was your initial impression? I still really like it. Sort of like um, some of all parts, I, I still really like it. I still think that it's a really interesting piece. I think it's really a good character piece for many character actors doing things that are slightly different to what they're traditionally known for. I mean, Tom Cruise's Frank T.J. Mackey and his respect the cock and tame the cunt. That was a very ballsy open, especially coming off of the very somber, neat, uh, more quieter, subdued um, eyes wide shut that he'd done before this. But it's a risky year for him, though, right? They get even, even the eyes eyes wide shut role was very different to the kind of he'd come off like the second Mission Impossible film, I think, was the next one that came out of the VISC. So, uh, I, uh, yes, I think it was. I think yeah, it did about then, you know, like, yeah, so it's just 2000. I think. In between Mission Impossible films, he does a Kubrick film and this. Um, yeah. Now, that's about as risky as it gets for him. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Jerry Maguire, yeah. Eyes Wide Shut, Magnolia, Mission Impossible 2. There's a bookend of a couple of films, you know, like, yeah. um, incredibly risky. I remember I was thinking, what a risky year he took in 99. And, mm. and personally think he should have got Oscar nods for probably one, if not both of them. Yeah, I agree. Um, he might have got an Oscar nod for this one. Uh, well, apparently, according to IMDb, they pushed John C. Riley um, for best actor and everyone else was being pushed for best supporting actor. And he was one that I was just going to uh, call out as well. He, up until he kind of hooked up with Will Ferrell, he was doing sort of like more quirky, darker kind of roles generally. This one, he's kind of the most out-and-out -out nice guy. <laughs> um, uh, well, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, who, again, he was someone, when he started up, he was that odd, weird, quirky guy that was unusual and a bit creepy. Um, this, he's, again, kind of playing against character, um, Julianne Moore didn't really do anything for me in this one. Um, I've never been a huge fan of her work. She sometimes does really great performances, but most of the time it's kind of middling and a bit screamy. Um, and that's what she does here. It's a lot of screaming and it feels like she's like the embodiment of, or the first to film representation of Karen. <laughs> just screaming at everyone and just not actually taking anyone else's opinion into consideration at all. Um, understandable considering the character's position, but still not exactly entertaining to watch. Um, I agree that it's too fucking long. And Paul Thomas Anderson apparently has gone on record and said, yeah, I would cut quite a bit out of this, which is good because it would need it. Um like the the storyline of um, uh, the Gator family, and then the the revelation right near the eleventh hour of was he a child molester? That just seemed kind of one toke over the line, far too far. Didn't really need it. 
they could have just had an estranged relationship and we didn't actually need that particular extra element there. It's like, okay. You make a fair point. There, there are some fantastic performances in here. This mm. is a rare occasion where I think the film is less than the sum of its parts. Um, I, I think everyone, I completely agree with your, your talk on the acting there. Julianne mm. Moore's role seemed hysterical almost, and I couldn't mm. quite, for a lot of the time, figure out exactly why she was being mm. so hysterical. I mean, aside from the fact her husband was dying, but, mm. you know, it, it really spent a lot of time telling us about that relationship. Mm. Um I feel like William H. Macy's storyline, his arc, mm. honestly could have been cut from this film completely. Yeah. I think he there's an actor who was kind of the it guy in the late 90s. He kept popping up in interesting shit. You don't see yeah. him very often anymore. Yeah. Um it's interesting. He has um a lot of repeats come back from from Boogie Nights. Um Julianne Moore, William H. Yep. Macy, Philip Baker Hall. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, all were in Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it's just a quick thing. He has a crew. He's a kind of guy, it's a guy he likes working with. Um, mm-hmm. But he's, um, William H. Macy plays uh, Donnie Smith, sort of a quiz kid, Smith, who was a former child quiz champion. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is now a loser. It's, it was noted in the, uh, in the synopsis that he is, we see him being fired, turning up late to, uh, and being fired from his job at the electronics retailer by uh, Doc Ock himself. Yeah. Um, nice that's, little cameo there. I was going to say, you've got a night. Not even one of the ones I noted was in the cast. But that links us to Indiana Jones and the ten, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, by the way. I'm sorry. I already um, know where we're going, sir. <laughs> um, not that. Um, but um, his arc just doesn't really seem to link to the rest of the film are great. Other than the soft, as we noted also, that another of the arcs in the film is about a young child who is now on, I assume, to be the same quiz show that Donnie made his name on, won his money on. Yeah. And he's a real whiz kid. And he's, we learn that he has a really rough relationship. His dad's like almost, um, uh, you know, one of those cheer moms, but he's a dad. Like, he's really yeah. pressuring his kid to win, and he's put all his hopes and dreams into his kid being a champion on this show. Yeah. And his kid's under incredible pressure and stress to perform on this kid's TV show. And I guess the link is it's hosted by, um, you yeah. know, uh, one of one of the dying men, uh, Gator, which is, I forget his first name. But uh, um, uh, um, <laughs> he just mentioned it. But anyway, yeah. Um, but aside from that link between Gator and um, and, and the young child uh, on on the show, Jimmy Gator, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Gator is the host of the quiz show. Mm. Um, but other than that, his arc of being under pressure on the quiz show and at one point not being allowed to go to the toilet while the show mm. was filming. I mean, who films a quiz show live? No one. That's who. Um, yeah. That was weird. But he pisses himself on the show because they wouldn't let him go to the toilet and you're like I, I don't quite understand how that arc clicks into what everything else is going on in the film everything yeah. about it was quality mm. Mm. but it doesn't come together as a whole versus the other part that confused me were the vignettes at the start of a film so the urban legends yeah. about the, the scuba diver who gets sucked up by a water bomber and dumped ends up being found at the top yeah. of a pine tree and of a Miriam Margulies section where she shoots her son 
who is in the process of trying to kill himself by jumping off a building. And that whole story angle, but like we spent, we spent five, 10 minutes on these two bits and you're like, yeah. How did they click into the rest of the film again? Part of me feels like I understand why Paul chose to have them in the movie because they are examples of the random acts that connect us all. And that's what this movie is trying to be. So like a, a mind map almost of just random moment, random moment, how do they connect momentarily bit, uh, bit here or there, etc. cetera. Um, but at the same time, the mild level of absurdity about those opening vignettes um, kind of made me feel a bit like it was a Roger Avery kind of thing when um, he was partnered up with um, this, this, that opening kind of feels a little, just a touch of the Pulp Fiction separate narratives all coming together in an unusual way, particularly the Miriam Margulies one of Guy committing suicide and then comically being shot by his own mum as he passes their window going down. That it wasn't seemed, really play for laughs, though, was it? No, but it seems it seems that absurd bit where it would be something that um, Jules would be talking about as they're driving around LA. And just like, you know what? I heard about this legend of this guy who was trying to commit suicide. You know, it it feels like that kind of it lives in that world. And so then having such a maudlin sad movie with a lot of very, 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 very sad people, despite of successes or anything else going on in their lives, it it felt very disjointed. And it was another example of like there were there were a number of crutches that he uses that Paul uses throughout the movie to kind of explain what this movie is trying to express or what is happening with this character. The musical bit that each character is literally saying a line that explains what they're thinking and what they're doing. And it's like, okay, yep, it's kind of cool, artsy, yeah, a bit wanky. But if you really need to rely on something like that in your story to keep everyone all on the same page, you're probably juggle, juggling with too many balls or you've just got too much going on and this is the only way to make it better. So I think this is, whilst there is a lot of genuine brilliance on on display here from the actors, from the production, like the, the, the single shot takes going through, particularly for young Stanley when he goes to the, the studio and the camera following him through and it's just all one shot. Beautiful production, fantastic, great set design, really intelligently done. But it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. This is a great idea. This is a great idea. And no one, apparently, according to the trivia, he had Final Cut and no. he could do whatever he wanted. It's and basically it after Boogie Nights, the studio said, whatever you want to do next, we'll give you the money and you get yeah. Final Cut for it. He asked for it and you got Final Cut for it. And yeah. I can't blame him for making yeah. whatever. I mean, he, I think he sort of something in here who said, I don't know if we're going to get a chance to do this again. So mm -hmm. I'm just going to throw everything at all and see what sticks in the end. And I feel like that's what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. He kept coming up with good ideas. 
but they're not full ideas. They're partially formed ideas or mm. ideas that don't quite click together as a whole. Yeah. Um, because and- overall, I think that he has gone on to create much, much better things. Oh, absolutely. I think there's parts of this that made me remember, um, it's almost like he's reused parts of this sometimes, I think. I think he reused the relationship between uh, John C. Riley and uh, Malera Warder's character. I forget her mm. character's name. Is it um, Claudia? Uh, yeah, um, Claudia. Uh, that sort of awkward romance between the two of them. Because you're saying, people are saying he's almost a nice guy. I found him creepy as fuck. He's a cop. He's investigating her. He's like basically been called out to a complaint about her, about her loud music. And he's kind yeah. of giving, in between, after giving her a lecture, he's now asking her out on a date. The power imbalance there makes that a super, super creepy thing for someone to do. Hmm. Um, and I was a bit, never quite got, again, I couldn't quite get what was going on between that dynamic between the two of them. It was like, initially I thought she's just saying yes to get him out of the house hmm. because she's a cokehead and she doesn't want to, you know, a cokehead wants a cop hanging around. But yeah, in the end, she seems quite glad to go on a date and seems to actually like him. But yeah. I don't know if that quite ever stuck that landing to go, this is what we're doing with this couple. Like, you know, this thing says, the um, synopsis here says it calms her. I'm like, well, maybe, but, you know, I mean, um, that seems like a leap to me. Yeah. Um, but maybe that's what someone else got out of it. Um, what I thought, though, was that it reminded me a little bit of Punch Drunk Love. Yes. And, and the relationship between Adam Sandler is that Emily Watson, uh, I can't yes. think of it, uh, in that film, um, so, you know, to this really awkward, weird, dysfunctional guy in Adam Sandler's character and, you know, a less quirky, but still mm-hmm. kind of quirky woman in, in Emily Watson being, I don't know, was she a manic pixie dream girl in that? You decide. Um, <laughs> but, um, that sort of couple that, that kind of, that kind of pairing really seemed to just click in that film and that, that, that love story was amazing in that film the only adam sandler film i like and the adam sandler film adam sandler fans don't like yeah um i think think that's a very good point and um looking at something like punch drunk love it's there's there's elements of it that are more bizarre and more comic um but at the same time the people aren't necessarily the source of the comedy of it um you know, Adam Sandler's character is really quite lovely. He's got issues, but he's really just trying his best to get through. There's, um, whereas with John C. Riley, you're right that that power dynamic. There is the thing where she she says, "Oh, is it illegal?" And he says, "Yeah, kind of." It's like, yeah, yep, <clears throat> that kind of takes it somewhat, doesn't it? And it just seems bizarre. And her, uh, Claudia, being constantly twitchy, nervous, and like, it, I, I don't know whether it is good, her performance of a cokehead, because it's supposed to suggest that he's actually not a good cop beyond him losing his gun and crying about it. But if I was on that date with someone being as twitchy as that, my first thought would be, are you on drugs? Hmm. And I don't know if that's intentional, that he's just supposed to be 
supremely naive, but it doesn't, it doesn't, they don't explain that. Whereas the kind of man-child element of Adam Sandler's character in Punch Drunk Love, they never genuinely try to explain it. And it just fits in the world, in the relationships, and particularly with Emily Watson's relationship with him. Much, much better, more organic, more wholesome as well. You seem to, it had a similar vibe, at least. Mm. <laughs> the only way I can describe it, it made me think about that conversation between the two of them, reminding mm. me of the vibe between those characters in Punch Drunk Love. And I kind of thought to myself, as you just gone, mm, I like some of what I did here, but I think I could do it better. Yeah. Kind of the example of there's a lot of good ideas in here and a lot of great performances. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you called out Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise did get nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this film. Mm-hmm. However, he lost out to Michael Caine for Cider House Rules. Um, I haven't seen yeah. it, so it must be very good because fuck Tom Cruise is goodness. And whenever people tell me Tom Cruise can't act or he's not a good actor, I'm like, the guy is a serious actor, mm-hmm. but I just don't think he chooses to use that very often. I think he's mm. he's been – why should you? He gets paid, what, 20 million bucks a movie or something crazy to go off and do. I guess the kind of films he enjoys doing are films like – Top Gun, Mission Impossible. And and to be fair, I mean, the criticism of when he did this, when he did um, Eyes Wide Shut, things like that, it was about his celebrity rather than his ability. So it's like, okay, well, if people aren't even going to, before the film is even out, people are going to judge me and say, oh, it's a Tom Cruise um, vehicle why the fuck should I bother? If if that's what people are going to think, I'm going to fucking do that and I'm going to do it my goddamn way and I'm going to learn how to fly a jet for this movie. <laughs> I literally read that he could be the first civilian to take a spacewalk in the next movie he's going to work, mate, with Doug yeah. Lyman. Like, that's nuts. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I know you and I both know people who won't see movies because he's in it. Yeah. Um, and look... I'm not a fan of his religion. Nope. By any stretch of imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what? Like, uh, he makes some decent movies at the same time. He doesn't go around murdering people. I mean, he's not a creep. Like, he's not on trial for touching young children. Like, certain other Academy Award winners, like, who I mentioned earlier. <laughs> um, uh, you know, he's... He jumped on the couch and acted a bit pretty weird a few years ago. Yeah. Like, I, I get it. The guy's a weird fucking guy. He yeah. probably is. I'm not sure. I don't want to hang out with him. You know, oh. like, um, that said, if he wants to come on the show for an interview, I will allow it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can just sit, sit there and just I'm quietly judging you. I would be happy with that. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, I, don't, I don't understand. Oh, I won't see a movie because he's weird. I'm like, Anyway, um, okay. this is this is an example of this. I was shot. He was fantastic in, mm-hmm. and I think the other highlight of his career for me personally is Tropic Thunder. Um, and there's now talk again of that Grossman, yes. film, film coming up, which I find a strange idea. I thought it was based on Harvey Weinstein, and I don't know how tasteful it is now to make a movie where your character is based on him. But yeah. if anyone can do it, Cruz can, I guess. Like, I guess he's, so. got, he's got the juice to get that made. Um, but he he's fantastic in that movie. Yeah, um, hilarious and vulgar. And it's it, it, when he plays against type, the guy can seriously act. So mm-hmm. I want to go into it. He is so good in this film. 
Mm -hmm. And the actual character is written so well that, like, this is 22 years ago, 23 years ago, this came out. Mm -hmm. He predicted this is the kind of shit you see ever, you know, all over the shop today. This kind of, the, um, today he might be called an incel. Yeah. Or a pickup artist. Uh, And I assure that's not a, exclusively a, a 21st century phenomenon but it's it's become a a thing in the last few years right there's kind of people um you know teaching men how to be super fucking creepy like this you know yeah um today he maybe he'd be a proud boy and be wearing a maga hat or something like that oh, yeah i just thought it was fascinating to see him play a character like that yeah. kind of ahead of his time in a way that kind of yeah. Um, you mentioned Philip Seymour Hoffman. This made my heart hurt because fuck, he was an actor. He was yes. an amazing actor. I I miss his talent. He was so good in everything that he did. He just every time he disappeared into into his roles. Um, and people, it's so easy to forget. This is very early in his career. Mm-hmm. Um, when you see what he did again, go back to Punch Drunk Love. He was so good in Punch Drunk Love as well. Mm-hmm. As um. Uh, and I'm with you, kind of like the only performance in here that didn't really work for me, I think, was probably again, sort of Julianne Moore. I didn't know Laura Waters, I guess that's what a cokehead's like. I don't know. Yeah. Um, what did you make of a frog, sir? It was again, um, it was supposed to be that unifying absurd random act act of god whatever you want to call it moment that unites all of the characters but it still didn't even it it could have been that one thing that really pulled young stanley's story into it he could have been maybe on his way home and walking down the street, that's when he maybe sees young Do- uh, Donnie trying to scale. And that, and then the three of them take shelter and just have this conversation. So that they bring them all together. But they didn't. He was still just perfectly comfortable in the library just watching it. And it's, again, production-wise, looked awesome. They did really well with it, mixing in so many dummies and the slime and everything and the sound was just it, it looked good and the the fact that they got real um toads and frogs in there just to so that they still had that genuine movement in there it looked great but in the story it's like i think i understand why you chose to do this but it doesn't really do anything i, I just found it I mean, I remember. I remembered it when it happened. Oh, that's right. There's a mm. frog thing in this. And I'm like, yeah. I was 20 years later. I still don't understand what the fuck you're trying to say about this. Um, you kiss enough frogs, and you'll find a prince. Just to mention the, the how 90s this film gets. Most of the paintings in the film, and there are paintings of magnolia flowers in many, yeah. many, many of the shots in this film. Yeah, were done apparently by Fiona Apple. The missed call where uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman mm-hmm. accidentally calls a pharmacy instead of Frank Mackey, the voice oh, yeah. of the phone, is Fiona Apple. And the story about the young kid not being able to go to the toilet whilst filming a TV show was apparently based on the story that Fiona Apple told the director. Now, nothing more. We, we thought this one was 90s enough with the interstate, the uh, 
you know, different character arcs, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. interacting and sometimes not. And Amy Mann songs, them singing mm-hmm. along to them in the movie. Fiona Apple as a major, you know, contributor, um, creative contributor to the film. Mm-hmm. In that. If you don't know who Fiona Apple's, do check her out. Some of her early music was very good. Um, but it's not a name you hear anymore, but she was hot, hot, hot in the late nineties. Yep. Um, I, um, I have had a little bit bad. I'm glad you didn't absolutely abhor watching this. Like I was like, oh my God, it's just three hours and it's a lot. Um, mm. it's a lot of, it's a lot of, a lot of film and a lot yeah. to take in. Uh, I'm glad you didn't hate it. No, I, I still respect it. Um, I think... On a do I or don't I scale, I do still like this movie, but it is not as good as I remember it. And part of that is, you know, in the in 2000, I was really determined to get into movies and things like that. So I was being hyper analytical and hyper aware of, oh, yes, this is the popular movie. So I've got to make sure that I'd like it. And, yeah, it's good. It's got a lot of really good things in it. It's got a lot of good redeeming qualities. But, fuck, three hours is a long time to look at some, to finger through someone's sketchbook of potential ideas for the future. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it was a lot to, st- to stand up against the crowd and go, the guy who made Boogie Nights, his new movie's not that great, actually. Mm. He was to be able to stand up and mm-hmm. say that. Everybody mm-hmm. was wetting their pants about Magnolia. Yeah. Um, but maybe it's also, you know, um, the intersecting storyline thing. It was kind of, you know, Pulp Fiction, Think Go. It yep. was just kind of the done thing at the time, the hip thing. Uh, and I think it's kind of played out now, well, VCs later. You don't see it done much anymore. No, no, you really, really don't. It's definitely one of the kind of forgotten or very rarely used tropes of Hollywood anymore. You still do get it from time to time, but I'm glad it's left to the side. So to speak. Anyhow, if you have nothing else to say, you have the keys. I do not. And we are going to follow William H. Macy. And we are going to go to... <clears throat> I just need to pull it up just to make sure I'm getting all the information right. It's another 1999 movie. And this is a lost gem, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mystery Men. Oh, I've almost gone to Mystery Men a few times. This is arguably the best superhero film of the 90s. Yes. Yes, it is. Directed by Kinka Usha, who has done nothing since. I think he literally said, I don't want to do another film ever again. Yeah. He's just not done anything, um, which is a shame because this movie is just bizarre and weird and just wholly unusual and kind of ahead of its time, but also of its time. It has got one hell of a cast to it. Ben Stiller, Gianni Gofalo, William H. Macy, Hank Azaria, Kel Mitchell, Paul Rubens, Greg Kinnear, Jeffrey Rush, Eddie Izzard. Tom Waits, it's it's got everything you possibly want. A group of inept amateur superheroes must try to save the day when a supervillain threatens to destroy a major superhero 
and the city. This is this is this is one of my most enjoyable things. It's, I mean, Jeffrey Rush is Casanova Frankenstein. <laughs> He's great. And I think perhaps the funniest scene in superhero film history is the toggle flip scene. Um, so I, I haven't seen this in a long time, but this film is worth, I'm looking forward to this. It's worth seeing. Mm -hmm. And then not just because of the all-star, not because of a Smash Mouth song. Oh, God, no. <laughs> but for anyone who wants to play along at home, this is available to rent on YouTube, on Fetch, on Apple TV and Amazon. Um, and you can buy it on all of those platforms as well. It is a mere $5 if you want to play pay a top dollar but four dollars on youtube um this is a great little film i'm really hoping actually it's got another link to it as well um ricky J. oh i don't remember which character was he uh he was the narrator oh okay yeah um so there you go it is a firm mystery man of 1999 we are sticking in the late 90s ladies and gentlemen that what an odd film. Like, you, you'd almost expect a film like this to come out today because yeah. it pissed out of um, superhero films, but there weren't that many being made back then. So No, no, there weren't. And and to kind of just go, oh, yeah, you know what? We're going to make a superhero movie about really shit superheroes. Ben Stiller plays Furious, who gets really strong when really angry. And throughout pretty much the whole movie, does he actually have a superpower? And it's based on an actual comic book, I think. So, yes, um, with the so, flaming so, carrot. <laughs> um, it was unfortunately overlooked at the time, but hopefully mm -hmm. you get to come along and watch with us next week. Yes. Oh, so excited for this one. I, I, there, there were so many delightful possibilities to go from from Magnolia because of that all-star cast. I was tempted to follow Philip Seymour Hoffman to The Master because I've not had a chance to watch that. Um, or you're going to follow the director to that as well. Exactly. Yes. Um, but I decided, nope, three hours of melancholy. Let's go for something fun. And it's like how it ends up. Yeah. Now, where should we go to next? Sir? What have you been watching this week? Um, well, shall I just do non-spoilery conversation about the Ring of, Rings of Power? By all means. Okay, so um, actually, you know what? I'm not going to, considering we recorded late, there's not anything new to, to put up. It will be next week that I'll put the season finale for Rings of Power. But all I'll say is I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Um, so instead of Rings of Power, I'm going to talk about an Apple TV original movie animated by one of the Me Too movement producers. Yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. I'm talking about John Lasseter producing Luck. Now, this is an interesting one, considering John Lasseter and his heavy fall from grace of his time at Pixar, being much uh, praised for many, 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 many years for his abilities as a direct director and as a producer and for being such a seemingly positive voice in cinema um, to be heavily Me Too. And now 
he's one of the heads of Skydance Entertainment, uh, caused um, uh, Emma Thompson was supposed to be a voice in a, one of the movies that was being produced by them. She refused to work there because of John Lasseter. Fair enough. Respect that. Um, always respect Emma Thompson. She'd fuck you up. But luck, luck is the curtain being pulled back on the millennia-old battle between the organizations of good luck and bad luck that secretly affect everyday lives. That makes it sound far more interesting than it actually is. <laughs> because it doesn't go into um, the millennia-old battle between good and bad luck. No, not at all. This follows... Let's see if I can get this right here, ladies and gentlemen. The, um, Sam, voiced by Eva Noblezada, as she is introduced to us as extremely unlucky young lady who has aged out of um, the uh, sort of like adoption home that uh, she stays at. She never got adopted. She was too unlucky for that sort of thing. But she's been working. She's shown maturity. And we see as she is introduced into the real world to live on her own, self-sufficient, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then one day she meets Bob the cat, voiced by Simon Pegg, bringing his quintessential voice work to this. And he gives her, accidentally, a lucky coin, which completely changes her life. But she loses it um, in comical environment and she tracks him down and follows him, accidentally follows him to the land of luck. And then they have to work together to try and get her back to the real world and get um, find this lost coin. Hijinks ensue. That's the story. And um, the animation is solid. It's fine. It looks pretty good. The voice work is generally okay. It's inoffensive comparative to other especially early 2000s where everyone was making animated movies and just getting as many famous names as they could to just voice them thinking yeah that'll do um there is a little bit of that to this there is a little bit of heart to it the um relationship that sam has with um one of the younger girls i think it's hazel maybe who um, is hoping to get adopted in the coming weekend. And that's why she's trying to get this uh, lucky coin back so that she can give her the good luck. Um, but it's very, very obvious what's going to happen throughout the whole movie. And there are no surprises. There's no real tension being built. It's fine if you are already signed up to Apple TV because it is free and it will be a perfectly cromulent movie to watch if you have got kids under the age of 10. Um, otherwise, there are better movies out there that are going to stimulate, excite and engage yourself and your children in far better ways than luck does. And Not that's what on there. Uh, it's got some talent behind it. The writers, uh, the mm -hmm. story writers have worked on things like the Kung Fu Panda mm -hmm. uh, films, uh, King of the Hill, 
the mm-hmm. screenwriter worked on films like Raya the Last Dragon and yeah. Cars. So there's some quality there. There's some quality work, but it sounds mm-hmm. like maybe wondering if maybe the have the, the John Lasseter have John Lasseter involved scares away some of the talent who might have been involved. Aside from Emma Thompson. Maybe. I don't know if it was this movie that Emma Thompson was going to be in, just to clarify, but um, that was that was definitely a story out there. Um, yeah, I don't know, because there is a lot of talent on display um, and behind the scenes for this. Um, but this, for example, time, the, the director is done sweet fuckle. Yeah, and it kind of feels like they've probably been shadow directed because there's a lot going on in this that you kind of look at it and go, oh, yeah, I see John Lasseter's fingerprint on this. And for better or worse, that gets the movie over the line. I think that the quality of the animation and the talent that has been pulled overall is good. If they can, if John Lasseter is able to fucking control himself and be a decent human being, for one thing, and build this team up and whatever they produce next for their animated movie is better, more solid in every regard, could very well see the birth of a new studio to rival the the current standards, Disney, Pixar, DreamWorks, um, even Illumination. But that stink of John Lasseter is pungent and mm, makes it hard for people to want to work with them. Makes it hard to want to watch it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just watched it because it was free, honestly. Mm-hmm. There was no other reason. I had no incentive. Um, Simon Pegg, whilst being an incredibly charming man and talented in many ways, he's not a voice actor. So it's like, all right, you're, you're Simon Pegg as a cat. You're not really bringing anything else to this. Whatever. Even the emotional story behind Bob's character, it's incomplete and it could actually have been a really, really interesting driving story for his character, but they just don't really do anything with it, which is kind of the review of the whole film. There's there's a, some really interesting potential and ideas in this movie, but much like Magnolia, they are they either focus on the wrong ones or they just incomplete them and just go, that's mm, fine sparkles. So yeah. <laughs> just a short review on that one, but it's just one one that I watched recently. So there you go. I didn't even know it was out, so that's good to hear. Yeah. I will steal it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to pay for another streaming service and John Lasseter can get fucked. Yes. <laughs> what about you, sir? What have you watched? What do you want to talk about first? We can really cram some stuff in. Um, mm. Coming up to our commercial break, apologies, we don't have a Trek perspective this week. Hoping we'll have it in the can for next week. Um, with all three of the Abrams vs. films to talk about. So that's coming up in a sec. But um, it's taking a while, ladies and gentlemen, because it's really weird. Michelle has got demands. And, she's got uh, a she life. He's, 
She wants. She, she wants. She has studies to do. Things. It's it's that hardly. Funnily enough, it's hard to hard to find time to watch films she genuinely hates. I mean, who'd have thunk it? Um, you know. Uh, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. I don't think she's going to willingly watch Star Trek fourteen when and if it ever comes out. Um, so <laughs> this will be a lot. Tarantino ends up doing anything with Star Star Trek that. Could be enough of a of a. T- oh, of a I don't think so. I don't oh, think really? anything. It's I don't know if there's anything that can make it happen. So she's been a fantastic <laughs> sport, and we will have retrospective, hopefully next week for you for the last time. Yes. Um, and we're working on we have to debut our next available T-shirt. We have some other, and we have some ideas about what might follow up with retrospective, but you know nothing confirmed. But it's been such a pop, uh, along with you know suburban commando, suburban commando. Yeah, <laughs> I keep saying it. Hopefully, we are. Uh, anyway, I would like to talk quickly about Emily the Criminal, which is a film I caught uh, weekend past. It's um, did um, didn't get a chance to see it was the Melbourne International Film Festival. Mm-hmm. The intro there. This film uh, star is a this is an indie uh, indie thriller starring probably most notably uh, Aubrey Plaza, hmm. uh, um, probably best known for in. Parks and Rec. Um, yeah. Uh, she was also in a film called um, Safety Not Guaranteed, which is another indie film from a few years great ago. Great film, yeah. Which is a really great film if you haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. That's from 10 years ago. How is that 10 years ago now? Jesus Time Christ. Time um, And the other name you'll probably notice if you look at the look at names, you're Gina Gershon, who for the it girl of the 90s. Um, yes. There's also Theo Rossi, who is instantly, oh, I know that guy. He was in Sons of Anarchy. Um, he was know. also in um, Luke Cage on Netflix. Yes, yes. Uh, that was a long time ago now. Um, directed by John Patton Ford, who I am not familiar with. Uh, mm. I think he's a very young director. I think this might be one of his first features. It might be his first mm. feature, actually. Keep yeah, on him. Anyway, down on her luck and saddled with debt, Emily gets involved in a credit card scam that pulls into the criminal underworld of Los Angeles, ultimately leading to deadly consequences. Um, so uh, this is a really different sort of a role for Aubrey Plaza, who I think is probably mm. best known for light sort of romantic comedies or just comedy, period. This yeah, no comedy deadpan is, comedy delivery is kind of second to none. It's brilliant. And I think she's fantastic. And I really enjoyed her work doing that. But this is way left field for her. Uh, uh-huh. She plays as a, a underemployed young artist who works for a catering company in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And we find out early on she's saddled with about $70,000 of student debt, mm-hmm. uh, which she's barely servicing the interest of working this job, um, uh, delivering food to offices and stuff like that. Uh, it's, a fa- it's a fairly thankless, um, thankless job. Which she obviously isn't getting much out of. She has friends uh, who uh, work more um, high-profile, sort of corporate, creative jobs—the kind of jobs that she wants—and they aren't much help in getting her a job or work with um, work with them. We open up to an, uh, her being uh, work in, attending a job interview where she, if they uh, doing a background check, the uh, potential employer finds out she has a felony conviction for assault. Uh, which she hasn't disclosed, and it's all really nicely pieced together to sort of build this um, portion of a character who is kind of stuck 
in the underclass, if you will. So uh, she's part, she's talented, she's intelligent, she's capable, she's hardworking, but she's being held down by these more mistakes and actions she's taken in the past, being you know a felony conviction for assault and you know all this mountain of debt. And if you aren't from the United States, student debt's no laughing matter in that country. You cannot mm-hmm. get under it. It's like proper bank loan kind of thing, you know, not like Australia. Um, I, I don't know. A university, you have to pay for university in the UK? Yeah. You have to pay. Is it, did the government loan you the money? Is that how it works? Uh, sometimes if you're rich. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You, you can get them, but you do have to pay it back still. Same in Australia. You have to pay the money back, but the government is a little bit, isn't quite a bank. You know, you're not paying bank interest on it, despite the fact that, yeah, they're doing their very best to make it look like the United States in this country. Um, so she's held down, really, um, this, this character. And she's really, despite her, her hustle, has not really any opportunity to get out from under that. And hmm. it, it really it starts to build the idea about this is how someone, you know, has a lifetime where they kind of, you know, don't move off that sort of hand-to-mouth living standard. Mm. A friend of hers at work puts her onto her phone number, um, which she calls out of desperation. And Mm. it turns out this is the phone number of Yusuf, played by Theo Rossi, who Mm. is running a credit card fraud ring. Mm. Basically, he has all these underprivileged, underprivileged is maybe the wrong word, poor people uh, turn up. He gives them a cloned credit card, they're told to go to a store to buy a big screen TV and then they hand the t- in, the, in the car park, they hand the TV, if the card works, over to Yusuf and they get paid $200 for trouble. Okay. So the speech at the start is a fantastic speech he gives them before sending them out. You're going to be asked to go out now and commit something, do something illegal. You're not going to endanger yourself or anyone else, but it is illegal. You know, if anyone wants to leave, you can go now. Mm-hmm. And she pulls it off and likes the money. You can tell she kind of likes Yusuf as well. So she decides mm. to escalate and try again and try again. And then it sort of starts to spiral, as it sort of says, uh, from there on in. So you start pulled into that criminal underworld mm. where it's almost um, – it's you can almost – what the sort of director does really nice is you can almost see how seamlessly it, it works. That, you know, one minute you're doing something that might be seen by some as a victimless crime, mm. you know, the credit card fraud. Mm. Um, just basically, you know, defrauding Walmart and Visa card. So, you know, mm-hmm. who do you bear for in that one? Um, <laughs> before long, you can almost get the seamless nature of her sliding very easily into significantly more serious and dangerous crimes. Mm. Uh, and it's what I like about this is that sounds like a pretty cliched storyline. We've seen that before. Yeah. In the nature of a character herself, she's so well written. And such an interesting character. As I sort of said, she's she's all these things we want people to be. Intelligent, mm. hardworking. She hustles. She's creative. She's got mm. all these personal uh, attributes that someone would need to succeed. And what we are told, you need to succeed in society. Mm. But she has no chance. That door has pretty much closed. Um, and for someone, you know, the, 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 it's almost the old, you know, the, the boomers climbed up and then pulled up the ladder behind them kind of line. Uh, and you kind of start to really feel for the character of what option does she have but for, you know, committing crime or, or b- breaking out of that, you know, mm. 
that box that we people to it's, yeah here's the legal box of society but yeah. she's not she's bashing your head against the top and there's no way out yeah then you know sometimes people are you can see why they would take that risk and try things that are you know outside outside the law as being one of a few ways to sort of break out of you know that rut that they're in yeah um the the character is beautifully written the acting sensational she makes some choices you just don't expect when the film as i I've, you must people who watch the show regularly i love it when a film zigs when i expect it to zag hmm. um if this film does that it, it really portrays this character as someone who's not going to lie down and, and take things um hmm. it's a fantastic scene where she um makes a foolish choice and meets somebody at her own home who's buying stolen goods from her and this, the, the, the scene it develops from that is eye-opening and incredibly cathartic. Mm. Um, okay. This is a wonderful, wonderful little film. So I... Where did you see this? Um, I'd rather you didn't ask me that question. Um, no, I... Um, at a drive through right? <laughs> I actually paid to see this at MIF, but I couldn't go. Well, you, go. Um, you paid so, for your ticket and you went to... You went to I, I, okay, look, I, I downloaded a copy, but it is showing at the Astor in Melbourne occasionally. I think it, um, uh, you, you'll find it in your art house cinemas around the place. It, it is, you know, a, a newish release. I think it's streaming in the US somewhere. Um, you know, yeah, it's no currently idea. not available on streaming services in Australia, but keep we, an eye for it. We can. Yes. Uh, look, just keep an eye out for it. Uh, if you're the kind of person who doesn't, mm. if you're so inclined, you can be found. Um, <laughs> as I said, it was playing at the Astor here in Melbourne a little while ago. I think it's playing at some of the rooftop cinemas here in Melbourne uh, okay. as well. So uh, just keep your eye of the ground. I'm sure it will pop up available somewhere or maybe cool. one of the streaming services to rent. It's a sensational little film. Mm. Really, it's really stuck with me for the Ralph since I saw it. Fantastic. Great stuff. Okay. Um, you think it's time for a sponsor? I think it's time for our sponsors break. And I've got a special treat for you this week. Oh, no. It's it's always so good and bad at the same time when you say that. Oh, it is good. This one's a good one. So okay. let's just get that queued up for you. Where, uh, where, are we, where are we going? Introduce our sponsors. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, you can use hashtag no discount at checkout for all of us. This week's sponsor is the Long Melford Football Club and their highlights over the last 12 months. <laughs> Sorry. This is football from my hometown. hometown yeah. Yeah.
love how serious they all are when there's like 12 people in attendance. Did it bring back some memories? Uh, no, because I never saw them live. <laughs> but I did walk across that field. <laughs> I know people will be very, very curious, but that was um, Long Melford 2, Lake and Eve 3. I lost that game. Sorry, guys. Ooh, a traditional low method loss there, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it was either that or Long Melford Cricket Club, and those streams go for about seven hours. Yeah, because nothing. Ha- this is this is for, for all cricket, not just Long Melford cricket. But nothing happens. There is one person, a very important person, in attendance for every cricket match where he's got a random timer. And it randomly just goes off, and then someone, when that timer goes off, goes Elsa, and everyone drinks beer. That's cricket. That's why we love it. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Seriously, you're gonna have to come to a 2020 game with me because that is just simply not true of that game. It's much more um, fast-paced. Okay. And there's, and there's a lot less police. Okay. You 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 organize that, and I will be there. Very well. Uh, you, me, Geelong, Cadinia Park, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, um, 2020 World Cup is, uh, on in the next couple, in the next month or so, actually, I believe. Oh, um, really busy at work, you know. So, uh, Sunday, October the 16th, every Sunday, Cadinia Park, Sri Lanka versus Namibia, Battle of the Titans. No, so, sorry, um, I don't, I don't really... Where was that? November 16th? No, I don't think we can make it. It's actually this Sunday, but... Um, oh, no, I, I will not making, be here. I will be no. away. I was making a joke. It says, you have some Namibia versus Sri Lanka. That does not sound like a particularly entertaining evening out. So, anyway. I don't know. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's it's all Russian to me. <laughs> you know, who? it's a country, so, right? Like, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> anyway, so that was Long Melford Soccer Club. That's where he's, he's hometown soccer club for a while. I think we used to take bets. On Long Melford Soccer Club for the um, on the GNT podcast, the uh, original challenge mode mm-hmm. um, that led to some very amusing outcomes. Yes, yes. I kind of feel like we need to bring challenge mode back in some way. Uh, maybe we can. Well, we have a think about that. See if we can come back, come up with um, who um, who could forget the wheel of Heigl? That is um, actually, I, I know that that still exists. In the third layer of hell, indeed. <laughs> um, and that's where Cavern Heigl's career resides these days. I'm told. Uh, yes, I believe so. I believe so. Now, enough trash talk, also known as English football. <laughs> um, let I want to talk about another Netflix animated series, limited mm-hmm. series that has just recently come out. I'm talking about one of our favorite topics, video game adaptations. And again, Tekken being adapted. Tekken Bloodline. It's a fighting game. Yes, it is a fighting game. Um, this follows the story of young Jin, Jin Kazama and his fight to become one of the best fighters in the King of Iron Fist tournament. This is your quintessential beat 'em up story, just translated to anime slash. 
even I don't think it was actually produced by a Japanese um, animation house. This feels very much like, um, you know, oh, what would they do? But we don't actually want to send it to Japan and we want to have it on a budget kind of feel. I'm going to just quickly check now. Oh, apparently it was Japanese. Okay. Um, Studio Hibari and Lark's Entertainment. Okay, it was licensed by Netflix. All right. It's an interesting one. Um, are, you a, are you a Tekken fan? No. No, not really. Um, Beat-em-ups, I enjoy button bashing. Um, I remember the... I think it was Tekken... One of the one of the techers they brought Eddie in, and he's like a capoeira Brazilian dance fighter, and he was great for just button bashing because every move just flowed one to the other to the other, and you could just spam things and it would look cool. And unless you went against someone who knew what they were doing, you'd probably win. Um, I know, sort of like um, a supporter and fan of the show, Siren Divine is a massive tech nerd, as well as um, one or two of the um, customers at at the shop. We've had discussions about Bloodline. Um, the fight sequences are kind of cool, and the story is overall interesting. Then gets to the point of absurd because there's a legitimate demon. And I kind of feel like they went a little bit too far with that in the by the end of the show because it was an interesting, compelling story of young Jin um, being trained in martial arts by his mother. And then this ogre character comes and just decimates her, kills her, and he has to go and live. Uh, he has to go and fight his grandfather, um, who is Hayashi Mishima. And he learns a new style of fighting, which make, which is far more brutal and violent and aggressive. And the idea is to train this Jin Kazama up so that he is the best fighter to lure out Ogre, who is an entity that apparently is only drawn to the most powerful fighters. And so this King of the Iron Fist tournament that is being run by Hahachi is designed supposedly as a trap to capture him so that Hahachi can claim it in some way. I don't quite know. It gets a little muddy. muddy. Um, and the... The kind of development that they have going on is kind of cool. But then when you get to the tournament, suddenly it goes into beast mode, super quick, go through everything, kind of forget about developing all these characters. And that's really to the detriment of the show because there's a lot of interesting things that are going on there, but they don't actually spend any time with it. It's, I think it's like nine episodes or six episodes, even shorter. And they really should have had this as nine episodes or 10 or 13. This is Netflix. They can have, this is what we say about Disney. They can have them each episode as long as they want and a season as long as they want. I hope that there is a series following on from this because 
the world that they created is overall interesting. And if you rein in some of the supernatural element and just really invest in the characters of this, you could get some really interesting stuff going on, um, particularly the character of King or King 2, as it turns out, is like an interesting story of why they're there. And it's like a throwaway line. And then, wait, what, what, what was that tidbit? Uh, Oh, oh, okay. You want me to look at the the fighty, fighty, boom, boom stuff again? Okay, cool. <laughs> sure. All right. <laughs> um, overall, the animation is pretty good. Um, it's done very well, but it does feel a little bit on a budget, especially compared to the more recent uh, Cyberpunk Edge Runners, which has had oodles of style and quality animation on display it was really phenomenally done as well as so many of the other animated things that we've talked about in the past for um netflix most recently was um uh the uh the sandman episode bonus episode with the cats fantastic animation um and the forthcoming pinocchio by guillermo del toro looks amazing for stop motion so it's a little disappointing to see somewhat lackluster animation coming there, but still it's serviceable. Um, the voice work is overall pretty good. They don't use any major voice talents in it um, to the point where I'm looking at the list and I don't recognize any of the ones that are on the primary list for um, the cast. Let me just have a quick look in case there's anything on the translations <laughs> built butts um yeah there's no one that i recognize their voice work of um but like i say they generally do a good job they just kind of went too far into the video games too soon i think they could have brought in the this more supernatural element later on but there was enough of a rich family drama to tell here to get them through the first season and just introduce this world and introduce a few of the characters rather than do what is traditionally done of ah throw all of those characters at the movie at once and you know, people will like it right no nah. we expect a little bit more from adaptations and translations now Worth a look. I mean, so that's a generally kind of a thumbs up. Yeah, I'd say on a scale of two, this is this one and a bit. One, 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 and, one and a fist bump. I'd be curious if anybody's watched the TV show. Sorry, but not watched it. Sorry, played the video game. Who's a huge fan? Like, mm. is this based on lore from the games, or are they just? Well, according to um, my friend Andrew at work, he was really. He was really impressed with the development of Ogre, the the hang-up that I have with it somewhat, because there's he develops into a character called True Ogre, and he was really pleased with how that was represented and the fact that they actually embrace that in the show. So maybe this is a show for big fans of. Um, I will reach out to Siren Divine and see what her thought is on it if mm. she's watched it. Um, but... I thought it could have, if, if they w did want to go there and that's what big fans would have liked, I feel like they could have just kept it with the Mishima family story to start with and brought that in at a later date. 
But again, we're in a point where we're getting kind of confusing messages about what Netflix are doing about animation, whether they're going to keep going with it, where they've seen quite a lot of overall success, or if they're going to drop it because it's just too costly for them. Who knows? As you know, this was contracted, so, you know, sorry, licensed to them. So, yeah, this isn't a Netflix animation. It's just something they've bought. Yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting one. Like I say, um, some some good stuff overall. I think I would maybe recommend this more than I would luck, but it's an, it's definitely more, ang- unlike luck, which is angled at blunderbuss shot of we'll get whoever we can get tekken is a little bit more niche so if you don't like it within the first 15 minutes you will not like the rest of the series they do generally hit their mark and stick with it on a typical trajectory so yeah i'd like to talk about netflix uh film now or a netflix exclusive (gasps) if you want i know this film was made for netflix but it's only on netflix that is luckiest girl alive Luckiest Girl Alive. So um, this is stars, well, most notably, Mila Kunis. Um, uh, the only other name I think I even noticed in there is Scoot McNary. Uh, oh, yeah. He of um, Argo, Superman, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and one of my favorite shows, Halt and Catch Fire. Um, he pops up in some interesting places. Um, this is directed by Mike Barker, based on the novel by jessica knoll who also wrote the screenplay um mike barker probably best known for things he's directed some episodes of hammond's tale fargo mm-hmm. uh Broadchurch, atlanta that kind of thing okay. uh, the plot line a woman in new york who seems to have things under control is faced for trauma that makes her life unravel Mm-hmm. So uh, Mila Kunis plays the character of Arnie Finelli, Arnie short for Tiffany. Um, mm-hmm. And she is currently engaged to Luke Harrison, played by Thin Witchrock. And if there's anybody in the universe who looks like they should have been named Thin Witchrock, it's this bloke. Um, I think he's in a lot of the um, uh, American Horror Story things. Yeah, yeah. I haven't watched, I've watched part of the first season and never again. Uh, hence, I didn't recognize him. So, have you ever Nate Face? And he was um, Connie Britton. He plays Arnie's yeah. mother, who you'll probably recognize her net face from stuff. Um, American Horror Story again. Um, Nashville, uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Luke Harrison, her fiance, is from Old Money. He is. He went to a, a prominent college. He was a lacrosse player. He's a huge, hunky, good-looking, successful, rich guy from a uh, good-looking, successful, rich family. <laughs> Tiffany is from uh, less uh, auspicious stock, if you shall say. You know, mm-hmm. uh, from and she sort of worked her way up to be uh, a, an executive editor at a women's magazine of some kind, like writing Boy. stories. Sorry, plucky yeah, plucky young, young journalist. He one might tell her that, um, but significantly more successful than Meg Ryan. And she writes <laughs> stories that she does not very proud of about you know uh, ten ways to give a great blowjob kind of thing. Uh, but she really wants to work a more prestigious job. She's hanging around to her boss has promised her to take her to New York Times Magazine when she takes a job there. Okay, um, and as it starts out, it just kind of seems like yet another 
rich girl in the big city kind of story. Mm-hmm. Until the, um, I guess, the Kerpal enters the picture, which is she's a survivor, a survivor, of the deadliest private school shooting in American history. Uh, and that uh, one of the other fellow survivors claims that she was involved in it somehow. Mm. Um, which she contends is not true. Okay. So that kind of our setup. Um, she's sort of trying to organize a wedding, um, try and contain her mother, who is portrayed as kind of, for want of a better term, white trash, who mm. is uh, kind of stands out like a sore thumb amongst the, the rich, white, you know, waspy uh, Harrisons. Uh, at the same time, she's got this director trying to chase her down who's making a documentary about mm. the school shooting, insistent that she come and talk on the record for the first time about her experience in the shooting. Okay. Throughout, we get, as we start to learn more about her background at school and her involvement in the shooting and what happened, we get these flashbacks to her as a young child. You know, mm. she was a scholarship kid at this rich school, so she was already an outsider and she was a bit chunky as a young kid and, you know, her experiences, um, you know, as sort of a semi, um, semi outcast at this, um, this, you know, very, very toffy school. Mm. Um, the film's kind of a story of two, two, a game of two halves. The first half is full of every trope and cliche and, you know, lazy, you know, film move you can think of flashbacks and, uh, you know, her imagining things that aren't really there, all kind of trying to sort of build this impression of someone who was traumatized without ever really quite telling us that that's what it was. So, for example, the opening scene is her and Luke in a very fancy department store putting together their wedding registry. Right. Um, you know, they send you around with a little scanner thing. Can you scan mm. different things that people can buy for you as a wedding present? And she, yeah. they're examining... Uh, expensive carving knives. And one moment she's, ha- is she's got the store person you know, explaining what these knives are and what they can do. And then the moment she fl- has a sort of a, I don't know what you call it, a flashback or something, where all of a sudden she imagines the knives are now covered in blood and she stabbed her, she stabbed her fiancé to death. And this is in the first five minutes of a film. And okay. you're kind of like, oh, oh is, she, is she unhinged? Is she schizophrenic? Is, is this what you're trying to tell me? No, mm. they're not. But this kind of little you know, flashbacks or you know imaginations or what do you want to call them uh, happen throughout the first half of the film without a great deal of explanation about what the fuck's going on. She talks about how she feels like a wind-up toy where you turn her key and she tells you exactly what you want to hear. And you're kind of like, hey, this is kind of interesting. But you know what the first half really made me think of? Mm. And it it reminded me of a film you do not want to be reminded of. It reminded me of American Psycho 2, starring, of course, Mila Kunis and the great William Shatner. Um, and oh, yeah. Because she played a sort of a random serial killer girl in that film, like somehow inspired by Patrick Bateman. If you haven't seen it, it is fucking wild. That movie is terrible. Um, and I'm by no means am I saying this film is as bad as American Psycho. But there were just sort of unexplained moments that kind of, seemed in there for shock value to sort of grab you and pull you into the story, but it was more confusing for me and kind of like, well, what are you exactly doing? Why is she imagining these knives covered in blood? I mean, I, I guess he's supposed to go, why are the knives covered in blood? I've got to watch the rest of this film to find out. 
Yeah. Um, for me, it was a bit like the tits in the first five minutes rule of any horror film. If there are tits in the first five minutes, it's going to suck. Um, and <laughs> it's a universal law. Yeah. Um, and so something like that is kind of seems like a really lazy way of trying to drag me into the film because your script's not very good. Mm. Um, now, all this said, the second half is where things start to really get interesting, where okay. she actually agrees to actually be part of the documentary. And we start to get some actual flashbacks of substance about what actually happened in the lead up to the school shooting, her experiences with her fellow students at this Toffee private school uh, have, and what actually took place during the shooting and her role in it. At the same time, being juxtaposed with the fact she's now going to be on camera face-to-face -face with one of the, the survivor of a school shooting who says she was involved in it and who has a significantly more sinister role in the lead up, in her life in the lead-up to the shooting. Um, and it really, I was like going, okay, this is starting to get very interesting here. It mm. all came down out it stuck the landing, and it stuck the landing pretty good. Um, okay. There's actually a scene of, of, of incredible intensity between uh, Mila Kunis and Alex Barone, who plays the character of Dean Barton, who was um, uh, shot in the school shooting and has now spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair. And it's kind of become inspiration porn. You know, he's written books and, you know, okay, yeah. given addresses to Congress and become a, a gun, uh, gun control lobbyist and that sort of thing. Yet we know from uh, Arnie's flashbacks that he is not exactly what he says he is. Um, and the scene between them in a quiet corner of a bookshop is some of the better acting I think Mila Kunis has done in her entire career. I was going to ask, um, how is she in this? Because she was um, uh, it, it girl for a, for a brief period, and then she did Black Swan, and then got caught up with Ashton Kutcher and not really done anything of particular substance except Jupiter Ascending. Woo! I was going to say, it's kind of been downhill since she... That was a big film for her, but maybe it was that flop. I was saying the same thing. Like She mm. was... A big star there for five minutes and then Jupiter setting happened and it kind of where she's decided to take a step back and just enjoy the money because she's still got that family guy money coming in. Yeah. Uh, and I believe Ashton's a very successful entrepreneur these days. Um, so maybe I often wonder, why does Mark Zuckerberg still work? <laughs> you know, like, what have you got to prove, mate? Like, you know, he you wants to get that one lucky coin of yours. <laughs> it's it's got to be the power. It's got to be the power, right? Like the power to turn, to turn elections. But like when you've got that much money and like, I don't know that, you know, she's got you know, squeens of dolls, but I, I suspect they're pretty well off. Like, mm. why would you keep working that hard? I mean, but she still does things. It's not very high profile things. Yeah. Um. But you're right. She 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 was nicked off for five minutes, but you don't see her much anymore. This is probably pushing her to the extent of her abilities. Okay. Um, I don't think she's a very good actor. Mm. I think she's a competent actor, mm. and she's an attractive woman, mm. and probably actually maybe a better voice actor than she is. <laughs> like she's done Meg mm. for so many years. Yeah. Um, She's a talented voice actor. She, she's okay. Mm. Um, in the hands of a better writer, a better director, with a better star, 
this could have really been something pretty special. Um, but they don't have any of those things. They have Mike Barker, Miller Kunis, and the author of a book. Um, and you, Lord knows, you genuinely, as a rule, don't give the author of a book the screenplay to write. Mm-hmm. Never exceptions to that rule. Gillian Flynn wrote the book of Gone Girl and she wrote the screenplay of Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe occasionally you can get away with it. But in this case, yeah. for Netflix yeah. film, it's pretty mm-hmm. good. It's pretty good, and and it's quite affecting the second half. So if you're like me and you're getting halfway through, going, this feels like you know a, a TV show, you know, or a, you know a really lame episode of oh, Sex and the City. <laughs> stick, it, um, stick it out, um, stick it out, uh, and you know try and put aside all the cliches that they keep throwing, and even through the second half, there are all those sort of cliches where she's driving back through her hometown. And she flashes mm. back and she's driving past the church where the funeral happened for all her schoolmates. And she sees her young self getting out of a car on the side of a road outside the church as the older self drives by. And you're like, oh, such a tired trope. You know, have you got no creativity? Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty good. It's pretty good for what it is. It's got a 6.4, 554 meter score. It's probably better than that. Okay. You just got to get through the first hour, first hour or so. Okay. All right. Interesting. Interesting. Um, for my final one, I'm going to. I was inspired by Miriam Margulies, so I went to um, the movie of um, a spin-off of a TV show that I was a big fan of, um, the Franny Fisher Murder Mysteries, starring. Australia's one and only Essie Davies. And um, two years ago now, I think it was. Um, Crypt of Tears? Yes, Crypt of Tears came out. And this is um, after freeing a young girl from her unjust imprisonment in Jerusalem, Franny Fisher uh, begins to unravel a mystery concerning priceless emeralds, ancient curses, and the truth behind the suspicious disappearance of Shirin's forgotten tribe this is absolutely 100 percent same mold as the tv show which for lack of a better descriptor is um the roaring 20s um australia with the delightfulness of the the pomp and circumstance of something like a hercule poirot um with the the local beat cop kind of feel of something like heartbeat uh, from the for the UK viewers um, mixed together with very liberal juicy amounts of um, kind of sexual appetite for Essie Davis. She's a very attractive woman, and she always wears these sort of fine silks and satins that just kiss her skin like moonlight on a witch's pagan tribute, <laughs> something like that. Um, but there's also the romance of the will they won't they with one Nathan Page, who plays D.I. Jack Robinson. Um, Miriam Margulies uh, plays Aunt Prudence. Um, if you've watched the show, you're going to love this movie because they basically kind of like what they ended up doing with Sense Eight. Um, they're sort of like, okay, we've got enough of a following that we could do do a final film. 
and it seems to have become something of a of a popular thing with community now coming out with finally having a movie announced officially and things like that this is just more of what you already want but for new people there is nothing here whatsoever do i need to have watched a tv show to get this because i've yeah. never watched it they, tr they, tr they they do put some effort in to try and make it open to people who haven't watched the TV show. But there's too much relationship between her and Jack, for one thing. And um, it's just, it feels like the the ribbon on the, on the series kind of bow kind of thing. It's like, okay, yep, you have to watch four seasons worth of TV to... To actually be able to enjoy this you can't just walk into this without knowing anything you could you're not going to get much out of it there's a lot of in jokes to it a lot of um references back to stuff that happened in season one season two three and four so you have to do your homework for this one production wise considering it is effectively a tv movie but just with a slightly bigger budget does a really good job they did a really good job in the tv show minimal set design using um still using live locations in um parts of melbourne because it is set in melbourne for some of the beautiful old um town townhouses and things like that it's really lovely and it's kind of refreshing to see something see this period of time not in england or france or america so it's nice to see what the roaring 20s was like in australia and it's quite interesting um just seeing how different the societal hierarchy played with each other in australia according to the friday fisher murder mysteries compared to england or um, america or france where there were much harder lines between interactions between one and the other um, the character of Franny Fisher is delightful because she is um, a cyclone of modernization in a world stuck in the past. She is a woman that will happily wear trousers because it's more colorless. I know. Um, she is liberally open about having sexual partners that are not boyfriends or partners. They are there because she wants to have sex. She relishes in that um she is a proponent for abortion and the, the rights of uh, women's rights and liberation so it's very very modern friendly in that regard for for social justices um but as a film you it's it's not gonna this is not gonna draw anyone into the friday fisher series it's just not there's just too much to do it'd be like um i don't know like going into just watching marvel avengers endgame and probably worse. To... it'd probably be like watching you know love and thunder so it's not even good <laughs> yeah yeah it's like okay Whew, sure all right let's go so i i'm not gonna recommend it but it's if you are a fan of the show, you will like it. If you have no idea what it's about or those detective stories, which are all so similar, you're not going to get anything out of this. this have you this seen is... any of the Jack Irish films? Because they're very similar, very similar, but they star Guy Pearce instead. I've heard that they're okay. 
I like Guy Pierce as an actor, so it's like I'd be happy to give them a try. But at the same time, it's like mm, no, I, I always I saw, feel like I've watched them. I saw one once at Myth, and I thought it was pretty good. Okay, and I've never gone back to watch them again because it's like it's the same as you say. But detective stories, you've seen them a million times. Yeah, yeah. So in spite of the the quality of performances, the set design, anything that's going for it, it's like. I know this story. It would be like having someone just go, you know what? I'm going to do something really fresh. I am going to do a modernization of Romeo and Juliet. Ah, that's never been done. Nope, never been done. Not once. Nope, never. Nope. <laughs> or Hamlet. Maybe, maybe with some like modern music in there or something, you know, just to make it really hip. What if, what if we, you know, just brought in guns instead of like swords and stuff? That's that's crazy. It's crazy it's talk. You're talking crazy right. talk. I know, I know. I went too far. I went too far. Too far. Too far. Man. <laughs> You've changed. You used to be about the music. Um, <laughs> no, no one's ever said that about me. No. <laughs> um, I had a couple more to round out the show, and, oh, and hopefully right, people then. are still sticking around. Um, real left field one that came uh came via mm. suggestion of somebody who lives in this house who shall remain nameless mm. um it was one of, the <laughs> one of the cats indeed and it <laughs> is the 2017 comedy the female brain and i yes. have never even heard of this um yeah. i believe it's on i can't remember which streaming service i watched it i might have been uh might have been binge i think um uh, or I can't think of which one it was. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was on one of them anyway. It is available legally in this country. Um, what makes a woman swipe right for Mr. Wrong? Sophia Vergara and Whitney Cummings star in this fresh, witty look at the science Stan. behind... Stan, there you go. It's this fresh, witty look at the science behind our romantic missteps. So it's a rom-com. Mm-hmm. I was trying to do something a little bit different here in a sense, but I believe it's based on a book by Luann Brizendine. Uh, who I don't know if Luann is a scientist or just an author, but um, the idea behind the book that this was based on was the the science of attraction, the science mm-hmm. of decision making around our romantic lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and the film will talk have, have a scene between a couple having a conversation about something, and then it will sort of freeze frame and sort of zoom in. Did you ever play Zombie Sniper? Yeah. You know how, like, when you shoot somebody in the head, it'll, like, it'll, it'll like, bullet, <laughs> and it'll actually zoom yeah. into the brain as the bullet. It's like that, except it don't, like, there's no bullets here. It was like, oh, in this scene, you know, like, well, this he's doing this because his amygdala is creating cortisol, and that's causing okay. him to do blah, to do blah, to make this decision to do this. Uh, it'll actually try and almost play out a, a, a scene between the couple and then explore the science of why the scene played out the way it did. Okay. Th- that seems to be the opening premise of a film. It doesn't really stick to that for very long. It's almost okay. like a gimmick mm. to say, hey, we're a romantic comedy who's doing something a little bit different. By, you know, uh, for example, you know, couples who've been together for longer than two years, but you're no longer, your brain no longer produces dopamine at that point in time. It starts to produce a different chemical, which I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and the other person in the house who did recommend this film would be now shouting at me, oxytocin, 
oxytocin is the one I'm looking for. And oxytocin reacts in the brain differently. So whereas, you know, uh, dopamine sort of produces that sort of natural high, where mm. oxytocin doesn't make you feel that natural high anymore. It now starts to, the couple is now producing oxytocin. So now that breeds a closeness rather than a passion. Okay. Um, that's the kind of thing it's trying to explore. Um, okay. It doesn't quite get it right, though. Okay. It has some interesting ideas at its core, but it doesn't quite pull them off. Now, names in this stars Whitney Cummings, who apparently is a stand successful stand-up comedian who I've never heard of. Um, mm. Toby Kebble, who I think you're a bit of a fan of. I'm a fan of Toby, yeah. Uh, yep. You'd know Toby. He was the Victor Von Doom in the <laughs> uh, movie. Um I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What, what was that? Yeah, it's, 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 it's for, uh, it was that movie. You know, that guy in it from the other year. Uh, <laughs> he, he played um, uh, the other, the opposing ape in the mm, Planet of the Apes. The series. Apes. He was in Warcraft. Mm -hmm. um, so he's had some some big roles. Mm. Um, so he. Vergara. So Fear Vergara. Um, we have. Uh, James Marsden, he of Cyclops, one of my least favorite actors in the world, James Marsden. Um, he is the kind of one of the, the poster boys for Lance Everyman. <laughs> Pretty much. He's like, do you need a handsome white guy? And we've got <laughs> the actor for you. He can fit so much handsome white guy in his bad boy. Um, Wait a minute. Hey, James, I've got a new uh, movie for you. Does it have an animated anthropomorphic character in it. No, then I'm not interested. Other names in here, Beanie Feldstein, who has one of the best names in Hollywood. Um, Beanie, notable for a couple of reasons. I think she's related to Jonah Hill, if I'm not mistaken. And okay. she might be his sister, don't quote me. Um, but she also played uh, Monica Lewinsky in American Crime Story, which I talked about extensively earlier oh, in yeah. the year. Right. She's actually a really great actor. Uh, Cecily Strong, probably mm -hmm. just known for Saturday Night Live, also appeared in a 2016 ghost hunting film, but apparently it was a reboot of an old movie from the 80s, but no one has ever heard of it. Um, uh, she's pretty good in this. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that got, yeah, whatever. And, uh, and a bit of a cameo from the, the great Jane Seymour. Oh, um, so what this film does, it, it sort of follows a few series of different couples, about three different couples, and a university researcher and her assistant who were running experiments, which normally are tracking the same thing that the book this film is based on is about. So, okay. you know, the, the chemical, you know, decision-making, if you'll be the science behind romantic decision-making behind empathy mm -hmm. and such. Uh, and Whitney Cummings plays Julia, who is nominally the, the scientist running the experiments. Being mm -hmm. Phillips is her assistant. Uh, I think it's like the center of a film is the fact that she has at some point had her heart broken. And she's like, no, I've evolved beyond romance. I understand how romance works in the brain. So I have retooled my brain. So I don't need romance in my life anymore. It's a little bit, it's a fairly, you know, the whole idea of, you know, the broken woman that started the film, you don't need no man anymore. Or the guy who says I'm, I'm, I'm past romance. I'm not doing it anymore. Mm. And she meets Tony, uh, Toby Kebbles, Kevin, who comes in to be part of the study. And it turns out he's a giant, he acts like a giant douchebag to her, and she okay. finds that attractive. <laughs> um, so around this, we have also 
uh, a couple played by uh, Lisa and Stephen, played by Sophia Viraja and Dion Cole. We have Cecily Strong, Zoe, and her basketball uh, star husband, Greg, played by Blake Griffin. And then we have Lexi, and played by Lucy Punch, and Adam, played by James Marsden, who are another couple. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing is, I guess it's insinuated that these three couples have at some point been involved in Julia's study. Okay. But they never meet Julia. We never see them being involved in the study. The film just tells stories about them. We sort of check in with them every so often. Okay. Lucy, Lexi is constantly trying to fix Adam, so by having him straighten his hair, etc., um, uh, and picking at him to, you know, get that thing checked out on your back kind of thing. Uh, so mm. she's constantly, you know, trying to she, – she thinks the way to – prove she loves someone is to try and help them to make them better to change them um we have sophia uh, lisa and stephen are a couple who've been together for like 10 years and trying to find a spark to reinvigorate that marriage and we follow them through their misadventures and hijinks and trying to do that uh whereas zoe and greg have a different type of relationship again in the sense that she he she's married to a very rich and you know successful basketball player at the same time, she's trying to launch her own career without having to lean too hard on him and his money and sort of, you know, remain independent and prove herself and her worth without that, you know, he's just doing everything for her. These are all okay. moderately interesting stories and reasonably well played by the actors involved, but there's too many of them and they don't go anywhere and they don't really resolve necessarily. Okay. So initially we send a fair bit of time with Lisa and Steven and we kind of vaguely get a, a resolution about, we kind of know what happens between them, but we don't actually get told, oh, this is exactly what happened. And this is, you know, you get some sort of nice conclusion to their story. Lexi and Adam take up a lot of a second part of a film and their story, and they get a reasonably nice resolution to their story. But Greg and Zoe just sort of peters out and goes nowhere. Um, so, there's lots of ideas floating around here. And from a rom-com perspective, they're not awful. Mm. Um, it just needed to be tightened up a lot with a much, much, much better script. The script uh, here was written by Whitney Cummings and Neil Brennan. Again, as I said, Whitney Cummings uh, is a stand-up comedian. Mm. Uh, she also directed this film. Um, so this must have been like a, a, a labor of love project for her then. Maybe it was. Maybe she had naked pictures of somebody. Um, this is her first and to date only feature direction. N- nothing else has she before this has she ever directed. Uh, this kind of sounds like the sort of thing. Like, um, remember that movie that uh, he's just not that into you? Yes, like, like, a, like, like, a, like an, a, an ensemble cast. Of, yeah, um, I think that was also a very successful book. Yeah, that's before, right. the, before this, she had only written. TV shows mainly like she wrote, she wrote two broke girls, which says a lot because that show's awful. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had a chance to do something interesting with a rom-com here. Mm. It just needed a better director uh, and a better writer to start with. This cast mm. was fine for the most part, probably if you're going to have a lead actor, like um, the, the character of, of um, Julia, you probably also want a better active in Whitney Cummings in that role because mm. she's not a writer, she's not a director, and mm. she's not much of an actor. Mm. Um, 
so I kind of think if you if you had a really talented writer and director involved, or a better talent, a better writer and director, and a really good a star, a Sandra Bullock, for example, you know, likable, convincing, you know, charismatic. Um, I, I think this could have been a more successful film. I also think the title sucks. Um, the female brain. We've talked at length for the amount of times people roll up to the multiplex, and that's where they make their decision about the movie they're going to see. Um, I just don't think the female brain is the kind of title that's going to get people into a cinema. It sounds like a sequel title to Frank Ch- T.J. Mackey's book. <laughs> Indeed. Um, it, 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 I mean, if you want to put off, mm. you know, half your audience, like, you know, this is a great way to go about it. Uh, and mm. you know what? It's not a bad film. It's got some good stuff in there. Um, but And it was kind of, the best I could say about it, it was inoffensive. Mm. So, look, um, okay. if you really like some of the people involved, if you enjoy Whitney Cummings' stand-up, you, that might be more your speed. Mm. But I think if you're going to check it out, set your expectations to low. The science stuff was interesting. I'll give it that, but mm. just needed to kind of stick to it a little bit more. Mm. And as I said, a better writer, better director, better star. Apart from all that, it was great. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme for all of the stuff we've watched this week. <laughs> um, well, I mean, yeah, it's it, it is a cheaply made, mm. you know, uh, and I can't imagine it's had a particularly big budget. Um, mm. And... It shows. Yeah. It's a shame. We, some wasted ideas. I have, I have one more to finish up tonight, and you'll be free to enjoy your evenings without listening to us anymore. <laughs> um, this, is a, this is a very different one from the last couple we've talked about. So mm. last night we watched um, the 1992 Mexican uh, uh, literary classic turned into a film like Water for Chocolate. Now I've heard of this and, one, but I don't know. And I, about I have it. heard of it as well. And I'm going to now pronounce and I'm going to attempt the original title, Como Agua para Chocolate. I don't know if it's chocolate is how you pronounce it in Spanish, but hey, anyway, I okay. don't speak Spanish. Um, and when tradition prevents her from marrying the man she loves, a young woman discovers she has a unique talent for cooking. Um, this is based on a novel by Laura Esquivel, who I think wrote the screenplay here as well for. The coincidence. Um, I am told that this is, you know, part of Mexican literary canon in the sense that, like, if you want to understand, if you go out and study Mexican literature, and there probably are people who do that who aren't mm. Mexican, this is one of the books you read. If you want to understand Mexican literature, this is one of the ones you read. So, okay. this is almost, you know, Catcher in the Rye or you know, Tom Sawyer for Mexico, but probably a little yeah, bit more yeah, sophisticated yeah, yeah. than I mean. So yeah. it's an important novel for, for Mexico. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> I was made me thinking, what's an important novel about Australia? You know, and I kind of came up short other than, you know, obviously the magic pudding. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a real book if you haven't read it. Um so the idea behind this story, we, we follow the character of Tita, played by Lumi Cavazos. There, are, by the way, is nobody in this film you would have heard of. It is a, a Mexican film. Um, and her sisters. Uh, mm-hmm. Tita is the youngest of the three sisters. Um, and 
uh, they are brought up in a very strict traditional Mexican household. And it is a tradition in that household that the youngest daughter is not allowed to marry. She's instead to look after her mother until her mother dies for the rest of her life. Great life. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Cool story. Um, her mother is played by, I think, Regina. Tom- I should have probably her names. You're not going to know any of these people. Her mother is played by this very austere actor who plays it brilliantly, and he's very austere and strict with it. Early on in her life, uh, she attracts the attention of Pedro. Um, Pedro Musquiz, played by Marco Leonardi, who has a, a, a color picture on IMDb, so I guess that means he had a career of sorts. <laughs> um, he, he was in Once Upon a Time in Mexico um, and he he falls deeply in love with her and expresses her love for her at a very young age and uh, tries uh, vehemently uh, sorry, and, and doggedly to try and convince her mother to um, to grant her teacher's hand in marriage she says okay. no no she's not that's traditions against that so instead he actually chooses to marry Tita's sister, Rosora, okay. merely to be able to stay close to Tita. So it's sort of, you know, his tactic. Um, Tita's still not very happy about that, as you might understand. And yeah. in the process of this, she learns that she has this, well, I don't know if she ever really consciously realizes it, but it turns out she has this ability to imbue the food she cooks with her own emotions. So um, she basically becomes a glorified servant in her role as the youngest daughter. So mm-hmm. she ends up doing a lot of her family's cooking um, uh, with the character Nacha, who's sort of a maid or, you know, a nanny kind of character at the start of the film. Okay. To cook. And, for example, she cooks the wedding cake um, for uh, her sister's wedding which is kind of a dick move, right? Hey, your sister's marrying the man you love. Would you mind making them a cake? Um, there's a lot of those <laughs> moments in this film. Yes, sure. Always put a little bit of yourself into everything you do. <laughs> so the cake ends up being imbued with her grief and sorrow. Uh, and when everyone at the wedding eats it, they all start crying. Okay. Uh, later on, she makes a, a quail with... Um, and this quail that she makes using with a, a rose, a rose petal flavored sauce. Um, and the rose she uses to make the sauce was given to her by, by Pedro. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this dish is imbued with this incredible passion that she feels for Pedro. So people who eat it all end up sort of, you know, uh, skiving off to go shag each other and stuff like that to the point where her sister eats it. Goes outside to take a, a very naked shower. Uh, sorry, all showers are naked. That's stupid. But a very, uh, very erotic-looking shower, only to find that it's so erotic, it it lights the fucking shower cubicle, her wooden shower room, on fire, and causes her to run naked across the countryside and join the revolutionaries. As you do, um, I know I've done that twice this year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what the naked um, shower? <laughs> you know, like I mean, if you haven't if you haven't run across the countryside naked to join a revolution, have you really lived? Deleted um, scenes from Forrest Gump, right there. <laughs> um, yeah, Forrest Gump joins the Symbolianese Liberation Army. Um, this, this sounds like uh, I, I'm getting kind of vibes of Amelie. 
Yeah, that's probably not too not too dissimilar from it. Um, what I believe this literary tradition is called, which it comes from the book, I'm assuming it's quite faithful to the book, mm. um, is called magical realism. Okay. Uh, and uh, it has been explained to me that magical realism is a Latin American literary tradition where due to political repression, you can't talk about what you really want to talk about. So you okay. talk about something else, so something fantastical that isn't, hey, the government's a piece of shit, but yeah. you use this fantastical story, which is basically an allegory for the government's a piece of shit, if that makes sense. If you okay. think of something like Animal Farm, yeah, used allegory to tell a story about mm. the evils of totalitarianism mm. and particularly, you know, um, Russian communism, Mm. That probably isn't magical realism, but something like that, if that makes sense, if you're kind of following. This is yeah. not just a podcast about film. You're getting a lesson in 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 literature now, people. But that's kind of what <laughs> kind of what you've got to think of. This is kind of, I think, the the tradition where these kind of crazy things happen. Can it continues to you know um, yeah, continues to come from? It's sort of because they continue to happen. It's sort of wacky things, like the shower block catching fire and everybody. Uh, the wedding vomiting because the you know the cake was so full of um so full of sorrow and such um it's you know and it this film is difficult to watch in parts though because i think it does assume a level of knowledge about a mexican literature and mexican culture and mexican history mm. so it's not going to really explain who these revolutionaries are or what they stand for or what the revolution's about, and, and you know, maybe I should know about that. That the various well, the people's front of Judea, fuck off. Um, I should know more about Mexican revolutionaries, but I just don't. So, um, <laughs> so I, I don't, you know, her sister, um, does turn up later as a general, you know, in the, in the actual revolution, um, okay. you know, after jumping onto a horse naked with one of the revolutionaries. How else do you get a job as a general? I ask you, because um, I don't know. Um, it does have a telenovela feel to it, in since the film is shot in very soft focus a lot of the time, in that kind of way that a lot of soap operas are shot. Yeah, um, and the dialogue is incredibly flowery. Um, okay. Uh, I I, I didn't can find any of the quotes here for you, but like only the pots in this room, you know, know your sorrow, um, and um, that sort of thing. And it's a it's a great conversation with a, an American doctor who is um, part, who ends up marrying, wanting to marry Tita. Uh, about you know, inside each person, um, there's a here we go. My my grandmother Morningstar was a Kikapoo Indian. She said. We are all born with a matchbox inside of us and we can't light them ourselves. We need, like in this experiment, oxygen and a candle. But in our case, the oxygen must come from the breath of a lover. The light of a candle can be anything, a song, a word, a caress, a sound, just anything. Something that pulls the trigger and lights one of the matches. Each of us has to discover what our triggers to life are because the combustion of one of the matches feeds the soul. If there is no trigger for the matches, the matchbox gets damp and we'll never be able to light any of them. There are many ways in which you can dry a damp matchbox. Rest assured, it can be solved. It's also very important to light the matches one by one. If an intense emotion were to light them all at once, 
they would create such a brilliant light that before our eyes a tunnel would appear, magnificent, showing us the way we forgot we were born, calling us back to find our lost divine origin. That's one, you know, monologue from one character. And wow, while it's kind of awesome, it is very flowery. Yeah. Um, and But again, I feel like this speaks to the language in which the book was written and the country in mm. which the book was written and the culture it was written in, uh, as opposed to something, just something that wouldn't fly, something like that in a Hollywood film. Just I don't think anyone could deliver that with straight face. Mm-mm-mm. Um, so this is a difficult one to recommend because mm. you know I had the help of Michelle, who knows a little about the book and obviously a little about some of the culture in that part of the world, to give me a heads up on part of what was going on. But at the same time, it was also difficult to follow. The ending was utterly confusing. I've got no fucking idea. The film sort of jumps twenty years into the future. And you've kind of got to put the pieces together to go, oh, so she never married that guy. He married her, but she's dead now. So that means he can marry her. And that guy's daughter is marrying his son. And, huh, okay. okay. It took me five minutes to put all the pieces together. And I'm like, maybe I'm an idiot. And, well, actually, there's not much doubt about that. But um, <laughs> I struggled. I really struggled to figure out what the fuck was going on. And in the end, is so melodramatic. So it's a very melodramatic, very flowery, you know, Mexican melodrama, but with some beautifully written dialogue, if, mm. as I said, very flowery. Um, it does show its age. It's 30 years old now, and it looks older. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy who plays Pedro, his blow wave should have been nominated for an Academy Award because it did a lot of work in this film. <laughs> um, it's um, it's a bit much, honestly, if you're not really into If you're a really big fan of the book, uh, in fact, I'd probably recommend probably finding a copy of a book if you're if you're interested in um, mm. um, that kind of literature from that part of the world. Um, apparently, Robert Rodriguez spent some time on the set because he was shooting his his first film, El Mariachi, in the same town at the same time, mm. um, which is a nice little link. Um, that uh, it's 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 I'm struggling to say I recommend it, but it was an interesting film. I'm glad I watched it. It's available for free in Australia on um, SBS On Demand if you're keen. Cool. Um, But, hey, look, you know, it's good to expand your horizons a little bit and try things from different countries. And, you know, we know a lot of great talent comes out of Mexico in terms of filmmakers, so uh, I'm glad I gave it a go. Cool. Interesting. So is it interesting to kind of just uh, find those kinds of movies and just... Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I just noticed the guy who directed this film... Alfonso Arau, uh, probably best known for playing El Guapo in The Free Amigos. What? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. That's um, <laughs> El Guapo. I love that film. That is. Harley, 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 Harley. Would you say, I have a plethora? You would have a plethora. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we need to find an excuse to watch that movie um it's probably racist now we don't need an excuse and yes it is racist <laughs> but you were saying it was interesting sometimes to pick up stuff from around the world that you know you wouldn't normally see 
Yeah, yeah, you can just suddenly find something that's like, okay, that's not what I was expecting. It's I was looking at the um the tags that IMDB used to describe it, and it is just drama romance. And that is something that you don't get much of, especially from Western cinema. It's usually when romance is involved, there's more than an element of comedy. Because as what sounds like with this movie it can end up being very, very flowery and kind of over the top for most people. Just too much, too saccharine sweet. So that drama, that romance, there's always that brevity to it. And it usually ends up being enough to qualify as, oh, it's a rom-com. But no, I mean, what was the last romance movie you can think of? Not many. They don't make many of them anymore. Exactly. One thing I say this film did pull off, it was not saccharine sweet. There was some darkness to this story. Um, And not your traditional kind of, you know, okay, three acts, meet cute, romance grows, tragedy, resurrection. You know, like it's, it's, you know, I mentioned her cooking ability. She kills multiple people inadvertently because she's imbuing her emotions into this food and then feeding it to people. Um, and you know, like she does kill her sister amongst other people in this <laughs> manner, so um, it's by no means is this a saccharine sweet. In case you, I gave you that impression, it's it's now, just a bit weird. I um clicked on the romance tag of IMDb just to see what came up, and top 50 romance movies and TV shows on IMDb currently, right now House of the Dragon, Blonde, which I'm surprised neither of us have got around to watching, but I do want to watch that. Super um, Mario Brothers movie? Yeah. Romance? Raw 4, Love and Thunder? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. The Empress, Grey's Anatomy, Anti-Theory. Yeah. Okay, so, it's a very broad term. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. It really, really is. Um, and just going off of um, what we were talking about before, for Australian literature, Picnic at Hanging Rock, and um, housemate Shay, she would um, probably mention The Power of One. She loved the movie of that one as well. Um, and the true history of the Kelly Gang. Interesting, there were moments in Like Water for Chocolate that mm. reminded me of Picnic at Hanging Rock, at least in the way it looked and felt. Okay. I mean, I, I don't think magical realism really describes what they were doing in Picnic and Hanging Rock, but mm. there were some mystical, magical, fantastical elements to that story as well. Okay. And apparently Barbie's a romance as well, so that's number 50. So it hasn't even been bloody released yet. It's in the list. People are already loving it. I'm looking forward to it, but yeah, I don't know if I could. Yeah. I, I think it's going to be so weird. I just think it's going to be weird. But... You know, I, I don't know what to expect. I hope so. But that brings yes. us to the to end, end of yes. this show, ladies and gentlemen. A nice round two hours and six minutes. That is absolutely a perfect round number. Um, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, we talked about our chain movie of the week, Magnolia. I have picked the 1999 superhero comedy movie, Mystery Men, available on most streaming platforms for rent or purchase in Australia, as well as the rest of the world. Um, Next week, um, I'll talk about the finale for The Rings of Power. 
Uh, we talked about Luck, Miss Fisher and the Crypt of Tears, Emily the Criminal, the Female Brain, Luckiest Girl on uh, on Earth or Alive or whatever they want to call it, and <laughs> Like Water for Chocolate. Quite a packed show for packed you. Show. Not now, bad for four days since the last show. Yeah, not bad at all. Now, I would also like to make a little bit of a plea for ladies and gentlemen. Um, you can go over to facebook.com slash georgetaran and find me and me because i am trying to 280 kilometers i think it is over the course of this month for black dog institute which is mental health awareness i did it a couple of years ago and i am trying to raise 1200 dollars so please go over you will find links on my facebook page where you can donate as much or as little as you like but anything that you can donate would be very very helpful it's something that i am very very I care a lot about mental health awareness and it is a great cause. It's a great charity. And, you know, it's always fun to see me walking around going, ha, ha, walk too much. Legs hurt. It's just entertaining for everyone, frankly. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's a great cause. And if what we are talking about causes, book. <laughs> no, that, that one's a hopeless cause. A hopeless book. cause, Travis. <laughs> book. It's available. Amazon. And Amazon, if you are listening, why not? Give us a free book by George Terran. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again. And we will see you this time next week. Good night. Good night. <laughs>